Hi, and welcome to a very special episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mabin, and today I'm joined by Professor Christopher Phillips, who is the author of the wonderful new book, Battleground, 10 Conflicts That Explain the New Middle East, From the Arab Spring to the Israel-Gaza Crisis. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, as always, to chat with you and your um, wonderful work that you're doing. Congratulations on the book. Thanks ever so much. It's really nice to be back, Simon. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, pleasure always to, to talk with you about your, your fascinating work. We're going to focus on this new book today, if that's okay. Obviously, you are the author of the critically acclaimed Battle for Syria, but you are branching out. You're spreading your wings. So what's the what's the deal? What's the genesis of this book then? I mean, the the subtitle kind of gives it away, I guess. But why not um, double down on the, the, the serious stuff? Obviously, the, the conflict continues to, to decimate the state. What was it about either Syria or, or regional affairs that prompted you to, to, to look beyond what you already have, have covered so eloquently? Sure. Um, so in many ways, it actually is it, the genesis of this book is the last book. So the, the previous book that was the Battle of Syria with the subtitle of International Rivalry in the New Middle East. Uh, and then this current book is called Battleground, 10 Conflicts that Explain the New Middle East. And so you can see there's lots of overlapping themes there. Effectively, what I found uh, as I researched the Syria book back in sort of the early 2010s, uh, as I was sort of reaching the end of that process, and I even I went back recently and looked over the conclusion of that book, and I even mentioned this, is that actually the, the patterns that I found in Syria, that of a, a weak state that was being uh, uh, fought over by various external powers, whether they were international or regional, and of course interacting with domestic forces as well, was a pattern that wasn't uni- unique to Syria in any way whatsoever. In fact, it was a pattern that was being repeated at that time across the Middle East. Uh, so in the most obvious cases, places like Libya, places like Yemen, places like Iraq. And I actually mentioned that in the conclusion to my last book. And I always had this notion that wouldn't it be interesting to effectively apply the same analytical framework that I'd applied to the Syria case to further cases. And as I explored it further, I thought, well, actually, you know, it's not just uh, civil wars in the Middle East that this applies to. It's actually often any, wherever you find contested politics. So it also applies to places like Lebanon, um, to places like Kurdistan, even to the Gulf. Mm-hmm. And then what I found, especially it even extends beyond the Middle East in, in cases like the Horn of Africa. Uh, and so uh, with that idea in mind, I thought, okay, why don't I, I, I branch beyond Syria, which I'd worked on for a, well over a decade, a decade by that point, and put my sort of international relations with the Middle East hat on and, and really delve into these conflicts more broadly. So that's, that's sort of where the idea um, originated from. I, I then, in, in, in doing this research, began to think, actually, there, there's another sort of gap in the sort of uh, intellectual and literary market as well, which is that whilst I think attention needs to be drawn to these conflicts, broadly interpreted, there isn't actually... There aren't many general readers out there that, you know, can introduce the international relations of the Middle East to the general reader or the policymaker or the student um, kind of from scratch with no prior knowledge. 
So I then went back over my research on these conflicts and then effectively repackaged them into sort of individual sizable chunks all about, I don't know, um, 8,000, 9,000 words long that would allow the reader to look at just that conflict, just that chapter in turn, um, or reading all 10 of them in a row. So it, it kind of plays that dual role of, okay, you can, you can look at this overarching thesis on conflict in the Middle East, or if you're the general reader, you can just pick up the book, look at the chapter, I want to know what's going on in Syria, I want what's going on in Iraq, and just read that, that individual chapter. So in that sense, it, it, it plays a, a, a dual role. Fantastic. So that's a really interesting way of presenting what you've got here. It seems as if you're sort of, you're donning two hats of the many different hats that you can wear, and there are indeed many. Um, you, you're sort of straddling the, the general reader market and the academic market. Is that fair to say, or are you, are you sort of leaning more heavily into one rather than the other? I think that's that's fair to say. It's it's a it's a constant challenge for people like you and me, Simon, who try to wear those two hats at the same time. You, you know, I, I know through conversations you, you and I have had before, uh, we're both people that believe quite passionately that academics shouldn't just remain in the classroom, shouldn't just be speaking to other academics, and so absolutely, there's a uh, a strong thread throughout this book that I am trying to speak to the general reader trying to speak to someone who is interested in the international relations of the Middle East, but isn't necessarily an expert and wants to learn more. But at the same time, you do still need to have that academic credibility. You do still need to say, look, you know, the reason I can speak about this or the reason that I feel well enough placed to speak about this is this larger body of work I've done over the course of my career that uh, is uh, based on, you know, the, the, the basic tenets of scholarship that you have actually sort of applied strict academic methodologies to the work that you've done. Uh, and that allows me to be able to sort of speak with a degree of authority in a, a, a slightly more um, accessible way, let's say. So, but I, but I, I, I would emphasize that I, this is also a book for an academic audience as well as a, a general audience. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't widely use, say, say for example, international relations theory but it does draw on many of the themes that scholars like you and I have been exploring um, when looking at the international relations of the Middle East um, over the last decade or so. So you talk about an analytical framework then, which is kind of there, but it's not really there, but it's sort of implicit. It's there if you want to look for it as a scholar, I guess, but the general reader wouldn't necessarily sort of take that as one of the key contributions of the book. For those interested in the more sort of scholarly underpinnings, what's the, the sort of framework that you're working with, would you say? Mm -hmm. I mean, you sort of alluded to the, the state weakness, the external penetration. How do you capture that in, in a sort of a brief soundbite? Sure. Well, I mean, firstly, first and foremost, it's a comparative study. I mean, it is 10 conflicts that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, that in itself is an, is, is an academic framework. It's saying, look, there are 10 conflicts going on and you can actually see you know, uh, similar patterns in Syria, in Libya, in Yemen, in Iraq, in, in Lebanon, and so on. And and that's a key aspect of what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm j just by pointing out their similarities and, of course, their differences and what does differ, um, uh, that's applying certain academic framework. I think more broadly, I do, <laughs> I do rather cheekily in the introduction uh, give a, a paragraph where I talk about the different 
theories and approaches that um, international relations theorists use to explain complex conflicts in the Middle East, and then put a little footnote at the bottom. And if you go to the footnote, it says, if you're interested in this in more depth, here's a long paragraph of, of, of uh, IR scholarship you, you can read to introduce yourself to this. So I am nodding to that if the general reader wants to look at that. But I also recognize that the work that we often do is overtly jargonistic. Yeah, you know, it's, it's sure. difficult and inaccessible for the general reader. And I didn't want to put people off. So, so I kind of square that circle um, in terms of how it's presented. But more broadly in terms of how, or more broadly in terms of the framework that I, uh, I am looking at, I try to be a pluralist. I try to say that, you know, you can, you can borrow different, um, different approaches. And I'm, I'm certainly not a dyed-in-the-wool um, advocate of any one particular approach. But with that said, I, I do feel like this is um, in many ways uh, a, a realist study um, in the sense that uh, the, the big building blocks have shifted. The structure of the, you know, what, what I call the new Middle East is, um, uh, comes about as a consequence of big structural changes. Yeah. And those big structural changes are a changing role in the United States, the United States in the Middle East, having initially stepped forward during the war on terror to then step back in the years of the Arab Spring or the Arab Uprising, creating a, a sense of a vacuum that other regional and external powers in the case of Russia and China have sought to fill. Uh, and at the same time, uh, a weakening of certain states uh, um, that has created more arenas in which those regional powers and external powers can compete with one another. Uh, and then, again, related to that, a growth of non-state actors um, uh, within those weak states that are also operating. So those are all structural conditions. Now, of course, I also talk about you know, the importance of agency and the importance of individual leaders and activists in working within those structural constraints. But you know, the, the kind of the, the starting point is that shift in global structure, which would map onto uh, a, a more realist international relations theory framework, even though I keep making this point, that doesn't mean what I'm saying. That's the only thing that's happening. Sure. Thank you for that. I mean, you preempted one of my questions. Uh, you, you will not, listener, be able to see what I was doing at the start of this conversation, but I was confirming the number of the footnote. And it's footnote six, Chris, where you, um, I was going to ask you what footnote six was, but you've already sort of preempted it, where you set out this wonderful sort of overview or snapshot of the key IR debates for those interested in going down that rabbit hole. And I think it's wonderfully done in a sort of sense of demonstrating your your credentials and the the quality of your academic hat, whilst also keeping that firmly on the shelf for people who want to admire your other hat. So I think you do that in a in a wonderful way. Um, you've just alluded to the new Middle East, and I know that um, our mutual friend Morton Valbjorn would be saying, "Okay, well, how new is new?" So, when is this this turning point for you, and how new is this new Middle East? Well, you know, it's great because the, the whole concept of, of the new Middle East has for me come out of conversations with Morton Balbjorn <laughs> and, and um, a lot of the people in, in Project Sepad and the various workshops that we've had. And in fact, you know, the, 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 
the whole discussion that I had in the introduction about what is the new Middle East comes or originated from a paper I wrote for SAPAD a few years ago about responding directly to Morden. And I say in both the book and that paper, that on the one hand, we do have to be mindful of what the late Fred Halliday always said about be, be careful to sort of talk about these key junctures, key turning points in history anywhere, and certainly in, in the Middle East. And I think that's absolutely right. And, and, and we must have the caveat of, okay, most of the basic building blocks remain the same in the Middle East um, as they have been in the past, you know, a, a series of states competing with one another, uh, aligning or opposing external actors that are getting involved. But I do think it's a fair assessment to say that the Middle East we're living in today is significantly different structurally to the one from, say, 20 years ago. And you can... And, and those features are the ones that I, I mentioned earlier, which are a, a, a different position from the United States, you know, less involved, um, more intervention from regional powers, uh, more arenas in which they can operate because there are more weak states, and more non-state actors being involved. And I actually um, uh, take the kind of one of the, the key turn or the data such actually isn't 2011, which is the, the outbreak of the Arab uprising, mm-hmm. which might be the natural time to start. But I often actually talk about 2008, which is the, the, the financial crash, so completely external to the Middle East. Yeah. But that's the moment when you see a shift in U.S. global power. You know, that's effectively the end of the war on terror, even though uh, George W. Bush is still in power. You know, the, the, the interventionism of the United States that had, that had dominated the 2000s and even the 1990s steps back from that point onwards. And it's also the moment when you begin to see more activist regional powers like Iran, like Turkey, like Qatar, begin to step forward. And that, of course, explodes in 2011 when actually there are far more opportunities to do that. So I see that as kind of, you know, your, your tipping point, although obviously like all of these moments, it's not like at that exact moment, yeah. everyone recognizes something has changed. And I, I, a good way of illustrating what has changed is um, some data that I used again for another paper that I, that I put forward for you guys back up <laughs> way, way back today, which is the, um, the, the number of states intervening in these arenas. So uh, I did some, some, some data analysis of um, civil wars in the Middle East from 1945 to 2008 and looked at you know, the, the number of um, uh, external powers getting involved in these conflicts. And in these various conflicts, the average number of states getting involved, outside powers getting involved, was two per conflict. Since 2008, the various conflicts that have taken place in the Middle East, that number has jumped to an average of six different states getting involved. So you can see yeah. that actually that is significantly different. And I, I, I uh, attribute that to these structural changes, the US stepping back, no longer being perceived as a hegemon, these regional and external powers getting involved. The US is still there, of course, but it is one of several external powers intervening um, in the Middle East. Uh, but alongside Russia, you know, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Qatar, the UAE, Israel, you know, the, the, this is the pattern that we see um, in, in many of the conflicts that I, I cover um, in Battleground. Sure. Uh, I think that's really interesting that you go, you go back to 2008. 
um, for for a previous book of mine, I I looked at that sort of period as well, and the hollowing out of of sort of state finances, the coffers of states, huge amount of capital flight in the sort of the mid 2000s, obviously exacerbated by the financial crisis, which plays a key role leading up to 2011. But I think it also contributes to the argument that you're making about state weakness and state capacity that is one of those sort of shifting contours, if you will, that allows for this external penetration. So I thought that was really fascinating that that was the the particular turning point, not 2003, as many would say, not 2011, yeah. as others would say, but 2008. So, yeah, really interesting point there. State weakness, though. I mean, what what is that? I, I'm, I'm trying mm-hmm. to get into the broad themes before we delve into some of the, the battlegrounds, because I think there's so much really interesting stuff. As you say, this comparative study that is built on some some similar sort of premises that can be applied across all of them. And state weakness was one of the things that I thought was really interesting here. Um, obviously, obviously, you've done a great deal of work on Syria and mm-hmm. and looked at the, the weaknesses or the strengths or the fierceness, to quote Nazir Ayyubi, of the Syrian state. Mm-hmm. But weakness, I thought, was a really interesting idea that, that is featuring quite prominently across a number of these battlegrounds. So what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, well yeah, I, I think... Yeah. I think, you know, if we want to go into academic definitions, I, I think the AUB definition, you know, is an, is an interesting one. I mean, obviously that, that's very much premised on the idea that uh, effectively states have to be democratic and have to have sort of consent uh, from the population to, to be defined as, as strong. I, I wouldn't quite go that far um, because I think that you, uh, in many ways, the sort of proofs in the pudding, you know, you, if you look at a state like Saudi Arabia or the UAE, which is not um, democratic by any stretch of the imagination, but in these days, we would probably describe them as having a degree of cogency as a as a state, and certainly the ability to um, interact internationally and not be interacted upon and not be an arena yourself. I think within the context of today's Middle East, I think we could define that as the the, the dividing line between whether a state is weak or let's say not weak, rather than necessarily strong. <laughs> sure. um, and. But I think what what's, what I find was really interesting, again, in this comparative study, is that m- almost all of the states or regions that we um, that I looked at uh, had had similar building blocks to what had led to state weakness. So on the one hand, there is this colonial legacy, and some scholars, as you, as, as we both know put a lot of emphasis on colonial legacy and sort of say, well, actually, this is sort of like the original sin, sort of like the the, the, the difficult building blocks from the very beginning that, you know, the, the British left in Iraq or the French left in Syria or Lebanon. And that made it really difficult for sort of the the ruling elites um, and the societies as a whole to get beyond that. And that, that clearly is true in, in most of the conflicts that I, I focus on, most of the states that I focus on. But it's only a partial answer. You know, we see... As I mentioned, other states such as you know, the Gulf states that similarly experience colonial rule but haven't collapsed into the level of anarchy that we've seen in, say, Syria or, or Iraq. And so in many ways, what you see is multiple moments, um, multiple different building blocks within these states that contribute to state weakness. So from from the, 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 the colonial foundations to the way that you know, um, ruling elites ruled, 
and in many cases in places like Syria and, and, and Iraq, you know, or Libya or, or Yemen, it, it's how a particular dictator has hollowed out mm-hmm. a state in order to make make sure that it preserves uh, that dictator's rule rather than actually leading to sort of, you know, a, a coherent society. And then there's some kind of rupture, um, whether it's an internal rebellion or in the case of Iraq, uh, you know, the overthrow of, uh, from, from the outside. And that in itself, uh, the rupture contributes to state weakness because you, you know you you you've suddenly taken the top off this this relatively hollowed out regime and, and there's nothing to fill it. Um, and then of course it's about that interaction with external players, whether or not uh, it you know sometimes that occurs um, even before the rupture. You know often you've you've got an outside player um, either trying particularly hard to limit or damage the ruling regime, as was the case in Libya or uh, um, uh, or Iraq, or you might have uh, an external player uh, propping up, uh, you know, uh, an, an internal ruling regime. Um, so there's, there's that external factor is present um, throughout a lot of sort of these states' history. But it's also it's also certainly the case that there's an external factor once the rupture ha- happens and once a degree of anarchy and and, and and state weakness bubbles up to the, to the surface because, as I catalogue in quite a lot of detail in the book, that's when these external actors, whether it's the United States or regional powers like Turkey or uh, or, or Saudi Arabia or or um, Iran or whoever it is, tries to influence the relatively weak domestic actors sure. um, that are uh, you know that are trying to um, acquire power in the in the sort of you know post-rupture society um, in, in many of these states. And we see that, you know, in almost all of the cases that I'm talking about, with one or two exceptions. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. I mean, I, I'm curious about some of the other patterns that mm. you've found and that that state weakness, external penetration, sort of the interplay of these ruptures is a really interesting one. But what are some of the others that, that really struck you when you were looking at these these 10 cases? I think one thing that really, again, it's, it's the 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 obvious point, perhaps. But I think one of the the most interesting points was how much regional actors are willing to get involved in these regional arenas as such. Because I think I think the, the role of the United States didn't surprise me. Like I, I, that that I, I, you know. Again, it, 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 it's a huge cliche and one that I try to move away from in general to blame the United States for all, you know, uh, disruption in the Middle East because that's, you know, a, a massive redu- you know, reductionist approach and one that simply isn't true. But of course, at the same time, the US has pursued many policies that have been destabilizing, whether intentionally or not, in, yeah. in many of these arenas. So to, to confirm that point in many of these cases wasn't surprising. But what was more surprising was the, the the extent to which regional powers, again, whether by design or by accident, have had a destabilizing and damaging effect. And even states like um, the UAE and Qatar, which are incredibly small uh, and don't really have the capacity at all to um, kind of you know, intervene in a stabilizing way in many of these arenas their willingness to intervene in a destabilizing way, whether they saw it as that or not is a different question, yeah. 
um, in multiple arenas, not just one or two, was really interesting. So you take a state like the UAE. The UAE, you know, is heavily involved militarily in Yemen. It's heavily involved militarily, militarily and politically in um, in Libya, the Libya context. It's actually really quite activist in the Horn of Africa, yeah. in multiple states, not just in uh, Somaliland, where, where it, you know, and Eritrea, where it's getting. Uh, um, offering support for different actors in order to get military bases for its war in Yemen, but also in further afield, places like uh, Ethiopia and uh, and Somalia as well. And, and you think you know, for this very small state with a, a really small population to have that kind of influence was really quite surprising. And likewise, Qatar. You know, Qatar is a leading actor in um, the early years of the Syrian civil war. It's a leading actor in the early years of the Libyan civil war. It plays a major role in sponsoring the Muslim Brotherhood as it came to power in Egypt. Um, it played a major role in Somalia as well, again, with rivalry with the UAE um, in the Horn of Africa. And you, you just look at these cases and think this is incredible, but actually these, these states that for many years, scholars like you and I that focus on the international relations of the Middle East wouldn't really talk about Qatar and the UAE as you know activists, big hitters in the region at all. And, and now they're that, you know, it's not just in a single case study, but in multiple case studies, they're, they're intervening and having an effect, whether it's good or bad is a, a different question, but they are having an effect on what's going on in those states. It's interesting you say that. I had the exact same thought this morning when I was thinking about a text to recommend to a new PhD student from the Gulf. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about Fred's book. Uh, you and I have talked at length about the quality of, of his wonderful book, The IR of the Middle East. And I was thinking... Does it even talk about, in any real detail, the Gulf states? And it's not that old. It's it's less than 20 years old. And that, I think, tells you about the dramatic shift that you're getting at. And that is, I would argue, one of the best books on the IR of the Middle East that's been produced. I, I mean, it, it, it's more than that, actually. So I, I, I took his um, one of his master's courses in the, in the mid-2000s uh, at the LSE. Yeah. And, and it was based on that book, sure. and and he, he would focus on regional regional players, mm-hmm. and the regional players were some that you would expect and some that you wouldn't from a, a twenty twenty four perspective. So he talked about Iran, he talked about Israel, um, but he also talked about states that we don't talk about now. So he talked about Egypt mm-hmm. as a major player. He talked about Syria as a major player, and he talked about Iraq as a major player. Yeah. You know, he didn't talk about Turkey. Because Turkey was not, you know, a Middle Eastern actor at the time, though it was plenty powerful, and he didn't talk about the Gulf. So what we've seen in the last year, in the time period that I'm really talking about, really, which is from, you know, Fred died, and I think it was 2010, um, but he wrote that book, you know, I believe it's 2006 it came out, so he would have written it 2004, 2005, that kind of time. Or was it slightly earlier? I think it was 05. Yeah, but it was very much, you know, the, the post-11 context that he was writing that. And, and that world, um, you know, between then and now, we've seen this, you know, completely hollowing out of sort of the, the heart of, of what was Fred's Middle East. So, you know, you know Syria, Egypt, and, and Iraq. Yeah. What's powerful states that were able, that were, you know, able to project power across the region? Two of those states, Syria and Iraq, have been completely hollowed out and are unable to do so. And Egypt whilst it, it, you know, for a while it looked weak and and did, was influenced in the early 2010s, has now recovered a degree, 
of its, uh, for want of a better word, independence and ability to, to project itself. But even then, it's nowhere near the level of influence that it had um, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, you know, when it was arguably the, the power in the region. Now it, it's at best a, a middle power within the Middle East. Um, and again, and, and, and from the periphery, Turkey to the north, the Gulf states to the south, and, and Iran really to the east, you, you've got new powers deep into that region that previously had only been marginal at best. Yeah, and I guess you can extrapolate and say as well the transformation of external penetration, as you've been alluding to. No longer the US, but increasingly China and Russia, dare I say India perhaps as well. Um, so yeah, dramatic transformations. But I, I wonder, across these these 10 battlegrounds, these 10 arenas as you call them, which I really like by the way, um, is there a sense of a transformation in the in the driving forces behind that penetration, that external involvement. Because going back to, to your point about Fred's Middle East, there was a sense that um, Egypt, Syria, and Iraq would be driven by either military aspirations, to put it crudely, or a sense of trying to address the ideational or the sort of counter-ideational trends of, pan-Arabism and pan-Islamism. To what extent has that shifted in this new Middle East, would you say? That's a really good question. And in fairness, it's not one that I go into in a great deal of depth in, in, in the book, um, because uh, what I tend to do is break down the, the individual priorities yeah, of all the states. Sure. And sometimes you do see some of those themes, and, and, and sometimes you, you, you don't see that some of those themes. I, I think that um, all of the, with the exception of the, some of the ideational issues, I think all of those themes that you outlined that Fred talked about were present uh, and, and sorry, and continue to be present rather. Um, particularly, obviously, the security element. There is a, there is a strong security logic to intervention. Um, so states, uh, often states that are characterized, and you know, you're, you're well aware of this, but states that are characterized as aggressive uh, perceive their own involvement as defensive. So Iran is the example, yeah. you know, often characterized by its rivals and its enemies as an aggressive state actor, building all these non-state militia in places like Syria and Lebanon and, 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 and Iraq in order to further their interests, and often perceived by the Gulf states, by Israel, by the United States as behaving in an aggressive way. Whereas Iranian policymakers, if you speak to them, um, and also what they write about this, it, it's entirely couched through a defensive mindset of we must secure these regions um, to give us uh, effectively a buffer zone, a, a safety area to keep our enemies who are much larger and much more powerful than us away from our border. Um, so, so there is that security logic that's still there. But of course, it, you know, again, keeping the, the, the Iranian case, there's also an ideational logic, like you say. There is a, um, uh, uh, there is a, a degree to which Iran sees itself as the the anti, the leader of an anti-Western coalition globally, but also specifically in the Middle East, you know, the so-called resistance axis, and there is a you know, strong thread uh, that speaks to that kind of language that runs throughout its behaviour in in multiple arenas, multiple areas that I that I talk about, like Lebanon, like um, like support for um, uh, Hamas in Gaza, like 
support for Assad in Syria and so on. And there is also, again, a, you know, uh, a, a religious component to it as well, which is, again, part of Iran's way of conceptualizing itself. And again, you're, you're, you're more of an expert on this than I am, Simon, but, you know, it, you know, Iran does put itself forward as the leader of global Shiism. And so when Shia communities are perceived to be under threat in places like Iraq and Syria and Lebanon um, and Yemen to an extent, you know, Iran um, often couches its interventions in that kind of language as well. So, you know, and, and you can say the same for um, most other states that are intervening, the, the, the same overlapping threads, there's a security element, you know, states feel threatened by what is happening. And so often are intervening because they see this is the way of protecting themselves. Um, you know, a classic example is uh, you look at how Saudi Arabia gets involved in um, uh, in Yemen. You know, it, 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 you know from, from uh, often the uh, the narrative, especially um, the the Western narrative about Yemen, is that Saudi Arabia is the aggressor. It's intervening uh, violently um, in. In its smaller, weaker neighbour, and and you know, using a, a harsh bombing campaign to uh, you know, um, really badly affecting civilians. Whereas you know, the Saudi perspective is, well, look, primarily this is about security. You know, yeah. we are worried that um, you know the, the the civil war in Yemen began when um, the the legitimate government government of Yemen was overthrown by Houthi rebels. So the Saudi you know, and, and Houthi rebels that have been at war with Saudi Arabia since the mid 2000s. So Saudi Arabia thinking, well, look, we cannot allow this neighboring state to be captured by a group that we see as a terrorist that are directly threatening Saudi Arabia. Um, so that's a security element to it. But there's also a, you know, a, a, a degree of, yeah, again, a, 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 an ideological component to it, which is that Saudi feels threatened by um, populist Islamism, which the Houthis also represent. And to an extent, you know, the Houthis are Shia and uh, the Saudis have, in, in the reverse of, 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 of Iran, portrayed themselves as the global defenders of Sunnism and so can't be seen to allow a Shia power, as they see it, to take over its uh, still ultimately just about Sunni majority neighbor. So, you know, there is you know, the same patterns, the same logic, the same motivators, kind of motivators anyway, drive them in the same way as they drive around. It just looks slightly different. Yeah, it's really interesting. And this sort of nod to different modes of security that are ultimately about security, but different yeah. types, different forms of security that are resulting mm -hmm. in, in different types of engagement at different times, yeah. different places. Um from the, the Saudi engagement, the Iranian engagement, the Emirati engagement, of course, in in Yemen, which was, from from my own work, was driven by a fear of, of an Iranian presence on the Arabian Peninsula. So it's not so much about the identity dimension there, but about a, a sort of a cold, hard, real politique, if you will. So that was one of the really interesting things that, that I took out of this, the sort of the different understandings of security that are driving things from the Horn of Africa and a sense of food security to that more sort of traditional mode of thinking about security in the, in the Yemen case and, and elsewhere. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I think what was, what I found especially interesting um, about 
the, the, the Emirati and the Qatari interventions was that I think more than maybe the other actors or maybe even the larger actors, you might say, sort of like the Irans, the, 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 the Saudi Arabias, the, the Turkeys, and to an extent even Israel as well, um, there, there were security concerns at play. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also, I think, with those smaller Gulf states, a degree of opportunism that didn't exist in the same way for the other states. It was it, it felt less existential for, for 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 them in some of the arenas that that they, that they got involved in. I think there was a general perspective of they they wanted uh, certain outcomes to happen. So, for example, Qatar wanted um, groups mostly aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood to come to power. Uh, across the region after 2011, and UAE wanted the opposite. It, it really feared, again, perhaps in that existential way, the Muslim Brotherhood so didn't want it to get involved. Um, it didn't want uh, the, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood to, to be victorious. But um, you do see in both states a degree of opportunism and getting getting involved in state in, in, in conflicts and arenas. Um, and I go back to the Horn of Africa again as, a, as an example of this, where there isn't an existential threat there. There isn't a security threat here. This is you uh, taking advantage of a weak state mm-hmm. and using it to try to further your interests. And what was really interesting, again, I go back to the Horn of Africa case, but this also happened in Libya as well, is there was a degree of a, of a, a escalatory cycle um, in different states' involvement in these states, so Qatar had a had, had the longest and most historical uh, relationship with Somalia, for example. And when the UAE started falling out with Qatar over um, the issue of the Muslim Brotherhood elsewhere in the Middle East, the UAE started getting involved in Somalia as a means to effectively outflank Qatar, and that meant the Qatar would then double down on its involvement and get even more involved, and Qatar's ally Turkey would likewise then get more involved in, in Somalia, and then the UAE would get even more involved, and when it didn't get the result that it liked, it, it changed tack and got involved in neighboring Somaliland to, again, try to outflank what was going on with the, the Qataris and, and Turkey um, inside Somali proper, so Somalia, Somalia proper. So you see that kind of situation, which is, this is, you know, in many ways, a classic case of a battleground, using my, my title once again where a state where there aren't any major security threats, apart from maybe you could talk about the presence of the Islamist jihadists like al-Shabaab in, in Somalia, but, but they're not really launching attacks that are threatening um, the UAE or Qatar's interests much. But seeing the opportunity to further your geopolitical interests uh, vis-a-vis your rival is what's actually sucking these states in. And you could argue the same thing happens in Libya as well. Sure. We've talked a lot about the sort of the escalatory processes that are playing out in lots of different ways across these battlegrounds. What about de-escalation? Do you notice any patterns of, of de-escalation? Are there any instances of, of de-escalation in the book? There are only one, and I'm going to go back to the, I'm going to go back to the Horn of Africa once again, which is that that the that the, the UAE successfully brokers a peace deal between Eritrea and Ethiopia. Uh, in 2018. And actually, that ends a war that's been waging since, you know, the late 1990s. And the, they're able to do that part, partly because you, you might talk about a degree of first mover advantage. Mm-hmm. Eritrea is a 
isolated state, doesn't have many international allies, doesn't have much contact with the outside world. And the UAE effectively, because they want to get access to a South port for its conflict with uh, uh, over Yemen, it is able to use a lot of money and a lot of diplomatic leverage to broker that peace deal. That's very difficult to do elsewhere in the region where there's no such thing as a first mover advantage because there's so many other states involved. Um, so you, you, do, you do get a degree of, um, uh, of conflict uh, fatigue, which stops conflict. So Libya probably is the best example of that. Uh, Syria is another example of that. But it's not really de-escalation other than the fact that uh, you reach what you know, political theorists would call a, um, a hurting stalemate, whereby the, you know, but both you know, the protagonists in these conflicts recognize that they, they will gain no more from continuing to fight, but aren't willing to actually uh, negotiate um, to actually bring, bring about an end to the conflict. And, and you see that quite a lot. But, but that's about it when it comes to de-escalation from what I've seen in the 10K studies that I look at. It's quite bleak in that respect. It's not a cheery read. No, I'm, I'm afraid to say it's not. And I, I was very conscious when I was putting this together that I was characterizing the Middle East uh, as you know, a conflict-ridden zone. Yeah. And as someone that's lived in the Middle East and has worked very hard in my career to kind of challenge stereotypes, that made me feel uncomfortable because I was you know, very much aware that that is just one aspect of geopolitics in the Middle East. There is a lot else going on. And I make a big point of this introduction to say, look, this is just one lens, one way of exploring the region. But at the same time, you know, going back to your issue about realpolitik, it is an accurate description of the main geopolitical currents in the region at present. There are There is a disproportionately high number of violent conflicts in this part of the world compared to other parts of the world at present. There is a disproportionately high number of weak states that are penetrated by regional and external actors. Um, there's a disproportionately high number of, um, uh, of intervention from external powers in the region. It is a highly contested region. And whilst I, I see and, and like to emphasize the other facets of this wonderful region that I've worked on for years, I also, you know, don't think it is a misrepresentation to say this is something that is happening. It's not the only thing that's happening, but it is something that outsiders do need to understand better, and that's the goal of this book. Well, I think you you achieve that goal. You do a, a really excellent job of sort of depicting the complexities whilst not ignoring the sensitivities and the sort of the multidimensional nature of politics that you have explored elsewhere in your in your canon, if we can call your your work a canon, which I think we can now. Um, Very kind of you. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you've you've spent a lot of time talking about the the complexities of of, of life and the sort of socio political realities without focusing just on conflict. So, although this book tends to veer in that direction, I think I think you've you've managed to sort of identify the structural dimensions that have given rise to these disproportionately high number of conflicts without disregarding the things that that you and I 
have have been trying to do for for so many years now in terms of breaking down stereotypes and and depicting the wonderful friendly complex rich contradictory nature of of life in this part of the world so i think you succeed in that and i hope people read this it is a wonderful book um there's so much more that we could have gone into but i guess that's for for people to to delve into on their own in terms of either reading it as a whole as you say or or delving into specific chapters in terms of interests but is there to finish chris is there one thing that you'd like readers to take away having having gone through the book is there one thing in particular yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's the obvious thing, which which you just mentioned there, which is just the recognition of the complexity. I think that, that and I, I start this, it, it, what, what really struck me actually, and it actually quite saddened me, I was very fortunate enough at the weekend to get a review of the book in the Financial Times, and I looked through the comments at the bottom, and, and the book's not actually available at the moment, so people haven't read the book, um, but the comments were uh, just a, a list of readers um, explaining conflict through the Middle East through the stereotypical lenses. So people were saying, oh, the book doesn't talk about the fact that this is all about religion. It's all about Jews hate Muslims or Sunnis hate Shias. And someone else said, no, nonsense. It's all about the fact there's oil in the region. And someone else said, no, it's all about, you know, the, the colonial powers that carved up the region completely unjustly in the first place. And someone else said, no, it's all about U.S. intervention. And, you know, and, and that's exactly what I said at the very beginning of the book, which is that, you know, even though this region is incredibly rich and diverse and has been the location of conflict that the West has been involved in or not been involved in repeatedly in the last few decades, it still ends up being subject to cliche. It is explained by single off-the-shelf explanations, whether it's religion or oil or the legacy of colonialism or intervention by the US. You know, whereas the reality is it's it's all those things and a lot more. It is exactly that. It's complex. It's complicated. And if there's one thing I want you know, the reader of this book to come away um, after reading that with is just a recognition of that, that this is a complex and complicated, multifaceted region. And if we reach for these simple explanations, we as a society in the West and, and our leaders and our politicians will continue to make errors and mistakes when interacting with this region. You know, I, I, if anything, I, you know, moving to sort of the policy side of things, you know, what I would love is that people come away with a sense of humility and a sense of, wow, this actually is really complicated, just as complicated and complex as, as our own societies that we live in. And we wouldn't dream of explaining everything in our own societies through a single off-the-shelf explanation or single lens, you know, and, and that's the key message that I really want people to take away when they're looking at these conflicts. I think that's a wonderful message to, uh, to, to, to have in the book. And on the front cover, it's got a quote from our friend uh, Mark Lynch, a, a ringing endorsement that says, a masterful interpretation of the wars of the last decade. And I think that's a beautiful way of, of summing up what you've done in this book. So congratulations, Mabruk. It is wonderful. When is it out? So it's out on the 27th, the 27th of February in the UK and the 13th of March in the US. Uh, and if you would like to uh, follow me on social media to find more about what I'm doing uh, with regard to the book, I'm on Twitter or X as it's now known uh, at, at CJO Phillips. Uh, and I'm on Instagram at CJO underscore Phillips. Instagram, goodness me. 
You are certainly having your finger on the pulse. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Is there any any final word you'd like to, to, to share? You all good? Just to say thanks ever so much for hosting me, Simon. It's been really great chatting about this. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Huge thank you to Chris for his time just now. The book really is excellent. It's published by Yale. Do check it out when it comes out next week. And give Chris a follow on Twitter, X, and or Instagram if that is indeed your bag. A huge thank you to you as well for listening. As always, till next time.